Well, good morning, Emmanuel. That was weak. Good morning, Emmanuel. That was better. Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Ruth chapter 2. We began a study through the book of Ruth back in June where we covered all of chapter 1. Today we'll pick back up and look at chapter 2 of this Old Testament love story that is far more than just a love story. It's a story within a story of God's great redemption of his people. A quick review of Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1 describes a family that is devastated by tragedy. The story centers around Naomi, who's married to Elimelech, both from Bethlehem, Judah. A famine in Judah caused Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons to go and find food in a place called Moab. When they get there, Naomi experiences one devastation right after another. Her husband dies. Her two sons marry Moabite women, and within 10 years, her two sons die, leaving Naomi with two Moabite daughter-in-laws, bereft, grieving, and destitute. Nothing had worked out the way that Naomi had planned. She went away from Bethlehem in a state of fullness, where she had her husband and sons and provision and protection, and she came back in a state of emptiness because her husband and her two sons had died. All that happened within five verses. By the end of Ruth 1, though, Naomi and Ruth are back in Bethlehem, and old acquaintances can't even recognize, is that Naomi? And she responds, don't call me Naomi. That word means pleasant. Uh, Call me rather Mara, because the Lord has afflicted me. I went away full. I return empty. No husband, no sons, no provision, and no hope. Except there's always hope because it's barley season. There's food again, but there's hope beyond that because there's God. And these little buds of barley blessing that they could taste on their tongue would, by the end of chapter 4, become such a blessing. It would blossom out into such a blessing far beyond their wildest dreams. That brings us to Ruth chapter 2. Now, I tried and tried to outline Ruth chapter 2 into three to five points that all start with the letter R, but nothing works. So this is going to be a pointless sermon this morning. Actually, never mind. The sermon's going to have 23 points. They all start with the letter V, verse 1 through verse 23. Those will be our points this morning. Here's what I really want us to do in Ruth chapter 2. I want to try to help us as readers of this story to enter into the story, almost like we're characters ourselves in it. Let's feel what these characters would have felt as these events are taking place. I want us to smell the barley. I want us to taste the roasted grain dipped in wine. Let's get into the minds of the original hearers of this story and understand something of what they would have thought, what they would have felt, and what they would have experienced as these events took place. I want us to see the faces of the characters in this story. I want us to take it all in and get wrapped up into the drama of it all. All right, so Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. You'll be helped if you keep your Bibles open this morning, but we will pop the verses up uh, on the screen uh, if you don't have a Bible with you. You'll be helped to follow along, though, if you keep your Bible open this morning. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Let's pause there. Remember, at the end of Ruth chapter 1, we only have two main characters who are left in the story, Naomi and Ruth, the Moabite daughter-in-law, both of them widowed, both of them childless, both poverty-stricken, both destitute. They've landed back in Bethlehem, and they're full of needs. They have two primary needs. They need food, provision, and they need family, protection. They have neither. That's the problem. That's the tension. That is the plot that the book of Ruth seeks to answer. How will these two women eat? 
And how will they be protected by family? Uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, here enters the knight in shining armor. Here enters the hero of our story. You can almost hear dramatic music playing in the background, all right? Hey, I'm going to say that a few times as we read through, and when I do, I want you to say, dun, 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 all right? Can you do that? So, all right. So, as the writer pins this name into the story, you can almost hear dramatic music playing. Excellent. Boaz. All right. There are two important facts listed about Boaz in this verse. First, he's from the clan of Elimelech. And here, you can't really get this without understanding something of the structure of how society worked in Israel in these days. So let me describe it to you. Each individual person is part of a family. Each family is a part of a clan. Each clan makes up a tribe. So individuals are part of a family. Family is part of a clan. Clan, part of the tribe. There's 12 tribes that makes up the whole nation of Israel. The clan though, was the most important family structure that there was in Israelite society, because if you were part of someone's clan, that clan had responsibility to care for you and to provide for other members within that same clan. One's clan brought them stability and safety. The clan is essentially your life insurance policy. It's essentially your social security benefit if something tragic were to happen to your husband and your children. It worked through the law of leveret marriage, which was a provision in God's law that obligated a man from the same clan to marry and to provide protection and stability for a woman whose husband died who had no sons. We'll come back to this when we get to verse 20, because it's mentioned again, but just register that now. But what we learn in verse 1 is that Boaz is from the same clan as Elimelech. Cue up the dramatic music. Good job. A little weak, but good job. All right. Second fact, Boaz is a worthy man or a man of standing which could either be a reference to his wealth, he's got provisions, he's got land, he's got fields, he's got crops, or it could be a reference to his character, he's kind. It's likely a reference to both. So Boaz, here's a good guy with resources, and he's from the same clan as Elimelech. Now Boaz doesn't enter into the action of our story yet, so uncue the dramatic music, all right? That would be nud, nud, nud. Done, done, done backwards. All right. In verse uh, one, he's just introduced as a new character in the story. Verse two will bring us right back into what's happening between Naomi and Ruth from chapter one. But what we have is the author just inviting us to know there's a guy out here. His name is Boaz. He's a pretty solid guy and he's got resources. All right. Verse two. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, go, my daughter. All right. To understand this part of the story, you have to know something about the gleaning law that God gave to his people. In Israel in those days, there was a provision in the law of Moses which was a sort of welfare-to-work program. Through this law, God set up a means for Israel to take care of the poor. The poor weren't to receive just a mere handout from the government, but there was provision for the poor to be able to work in order to get food. God knew that there was always going to be poor living among his people, destitute people, those who had no land, no family, no provision, no job, and no food. And when he gave his people the law, he established a way for the poor to be able to survive and get food. Hear this from Leviticus chapter 9. Leviticus 9, verse 9 and following says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip the vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor, 
and for the sojourner, I am the Lord your God. That same exact law is given in Deuteronomy 24, 19 and following. This is the gleaning law that God had established in order uh, for the poor to receive food. God instructed landowners, when you glean off of your fields, Intent, be intentionally careless with the corners, all right? Leave all the corners of your field so that those who are poor can come and have something to eat. Intentionally leave behind those portions. If you drop a grape, leave it there for the poor to come and gather it. God had set that up in his law. God built mercy for the poor right into his law. And it was this portion of the law that both Ruth and Naomi were benefiting from because they found themselves in a desperate situation without food. All right. So with nothing to her name, Ruth says to Naomi, I'm going out. I want to see if I can find a field to glean some food for us from. Now, I know I said this in, in the first sermon, but remember, this is the day of the judges. Not everybody's obeying God's law. In fact, everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. So it's not that every landowner is just keeping God's law perfectly, but maybe, just maybe, there's an upright Israelite out there who's obeying God's law and he's leaving corners of his field so that we can glean and eat dinner tonight. Maybe I can find one who will have mercy on me and show me a little bit of favor. Now, Ruth needs to be shown favor from someone because the reality is she is a widowed foreigner. She's got to find a field where someone will allow her to come into that field and come behind the reapers and pick up a few scraps of grain to cobble together a meal. Maybe she can find enough scraps for both she and Naomi to be able to eat dinner tonight. Now, this is where the story gets really good. Verse 3. All right. So she sets out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to, huh, Boaz, who, just in case you forgot, he's from the clan of Elimelech. Cue up the dramatic music. I mean, what a coincidence, right? This is how the author chooses to tell this portion of the story. She just so happened. The Hebrew right here literally reads more like this, as chance chanced. We would say today, as luck would have it. Of all the fields in Judah, that she could end up in, she just so happens to end up in the field that belongs to Boaz. I mean, who would have thought? Let this register, brothers and sisters. Nothing happens by chance in the economy of God. I mean, nothing, nothing, nothing is mere coincidence, nothing in Ruth and Naomi's life and nothing in your life and nothing in my life. Nothing is haphazard or meaningless, nothing. This is not accidental. God is totally sovereign over the field where Ruth would find herself gleaning. Life is not a series of accidental events without point or purpose. There is a sovereign God who is always orchestrating events and details for his glory and for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is divinely orchestrated providence, nothing less than that. Now, when I think about divinely orchestrated providence, I cannot help but think of the adoption of my own two girls. Christy and I had been married. I could, I could tell the story even of how we got married and say, it just so happened my family moved to Pensacola when I was 17 years old, and it just so happened that there was a really cute greeter in the youth group that greeted me and befriended me. It just so happened that she said yes when I asked her to marry me four years later. Just so happened. Well, we'd been married seven years, and it just so happened that we began to struggle 
with infertility. And it just so happened that we stumbled across an advertisement for foster parents. And it just so happened that we took the class. And it just so happened that we registered to take all the classes to become approved because it just so happened that Louisville had a program for foster families who would want to adopt children if the need arose. And it just so happened that our home was open for less than a week before a little bitty, tiny, three pound, four ounce baby girl was born in need of family. And it just so happened we began visiting that tiny baby girl. And it just so happens that she's nearly 20 years old now. <laughs> but it, it just so happened that we took her home from the hospital. Just so happened that six months in, parental rights were terminated. Just so happened that right at nine months, she's fully adopted as our child. And it just so happened that a year later, we opened our home again, and in a very short time, there's another premature baby girl born at UofL Hospital in need of family, and it just so happened we visited her, just so happened that at not six months, her parental rights were terminated, and it just so happened that at nine months, she was fully adopted, and our second child, and both of those girls are now 18 and 20, and when I think about the things that just so happened in this world, my heart screams, God is sovereign. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. Even those delays where social workers are not turning in paperwork on time and you're frustrated, God is sovereign over the precise detail of when our home would open. My heart cries out, God is sovereign and he's good. There is not one portion of your life or my life that he is not divinely, powerfully, wonderfully sovereign over. There's nothing that has happened this week or last week or that will happen this next week that God is not sovereign and powerful and good controlling. It gets better in our story. Verse 4, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Now, this is almost just too much, all right? Boaz just happens to arrive in Bethlehem in his field at just the opportune time. All right, fellas. How many of you have watched chick flicks with, you, with your wife? At least one, yeah? Like almost every one of us, all right. All right. Chick flicks are notorious for the snow falls at just the right time, and boy, they end up in the same place. Who could ever arrange the details of how things fit together in a chick flick? I, I watch those, and honestly, I think within like the first five minutes, I, I start thinking, oh my goodness, this is so ridiculous. Like, this never happens. Like, life does not happen. But then I look over at Christy, and she's like so immersed in it, and she's just loving every detail of it. Like, this is the way things ought to be. I was thinking maybe I'd go for a run, but I guess we'll stick it out and watch the whole thing. Um, well, listen, under the sovereignty of God, the details of this story come together more perfectly than the best chick flicks in the world. And those stories have nothing over the story of Ruth, and the story of Ruth is true. It all happened exactly the way it's described. So Boaz arrives in Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Pause right here. You can tell a lot about a person by the very first words that come out of their mouth. And with Boaz, the first words out of his mouth that we read recorded, blessing. He's blessing his workers. And they respond, the Lord bless you. Then verse 5, then Boaz said to his young man, who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? All right, in case you missed it, that is the Old Testament equivalent of check that girl out. <laughs> Boaz's interest is piqued, which makes me think that Ruth was probably attractive. That's speculation on the text, but he's, she has grabbed his eye for some reason, so much so that he begins to ask, who's she? 
More specifically, he doesn't say who she is as if he just wants to know what her name is, but he says, whose is she? Meaning, what clan is she a part of? Where does she fit into the structure of Israel, setting up the tension that we find in the book of Ruth? Because, remember, she is a Moabite daughter-in-law without a clan and without a husband, meaning she's outside of that safety net of provision. She has no social security benefits. She's in need of family. And that's exactly how the foreman in the field responds in verse 6. She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. The author makes it abundantly clear that Ruth is a Moabite. We saw it in verse 2, Ruth the Moabite. Repeated again in verse 6, the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. The author emphasizes she ain't from these parts. She's not from here. She's an outsider. She has no clan and she has no protection. Verse 7, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So Boaz gets filled in a little bit about who Ruth was and where she came from and what she's been up to working in his field all day. But the next thing we read is Boaz making a beeline to talk with her which is a little bit surprising. It's a little bit surprising. The wealthy Israelite landowner finds himself going directly to a foreign Moabite woman working in his field. She's not working in his field as a hired worker, but as a poor Gentile widow, trying to glean a little bit from these edges. In other words, she's the lowest rung of the social ladder. And listen to what Boaz says to her, verse eight. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean another in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. How's that for an Old Testament pickup line? <laughs> I mean, it's not quite, you had me from hello, but uh, it is warm. And it is awfully kind. He addresses her with a term of endearment, my daughter. And then he instructs her, don't you go off into somebody else's field. You stick right here in my fields, reap from my crops. These are, if you're sort of tracking through the story, these are the very first kind words and kind actions that Ruth has been shown in the entire book. You might circle the word keep close. It's actually the exact same Hebrew word that we saw Ruth saying to Naomi in chapter 1, verse 14, when she vowed never to leave Naomi, but she would cling to her. She promised to let nothing but death separate me from you. It's the same word. Boaz is warmly welcoming Ruth to keep coming into his fields and gather food because in his fields, she's going to be provided for and she's going to be protected. Sadly, again, remember, this is the day of the, the, the judges. Things are not safe. In the days of the judges, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And it was common for a foreign woman working in fields in Bethlehem to be assaulted or mistreated or harmed or abused or at the very least insulted in the fields. And so Boaz says, you stick here, you'll be protected. And whenever you get thirsty, drink from the water jugs that my men have filled. Now, if we are original readers of this, our jaws are dropping on the ground at that point. This, this, he's breaking all kinds of cultural rules in doing that. This is shocking. Boaz, basically, you can drink from these jars. This is a day when foreigners would fill the jars for the Israelites to drink from. And women would fill the jars for the men from drink, could drink from. But here we have Israelite men filling jars and a foreigner invited to drink freely from those same jars. This doesn't happen. This is a shocking display of great extravagant kindness, which is why we're not surprised when we get to verse 10. It might seem like an overly dramatic gesture from Ruth, but it's not when we understand the context. Here's her response. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground. That is the Old Testament word for worship. And she said to him, why? 
have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? That right there, that is the question of the chapter. That's the question of the chapter right there. Why are you being so kind to me? Don't you know I'm, I'm a nobody? I have nothing. I'm an outsider. I'm not a part of your clan structure. I don't belong. Ruth, remember, she's in great need of someone to show favor to her. She was in a desperate situation depending on charity at the complete mercy of another. And so Ruth is shocked at Boaz's treatment of her. Why have you shown favor to me? I'm nothing. I'm poor. Poorer than poor. I'm nobody. I have no social standing at all here. Why are you being so kind to me? I'm overwhelmed by your generosity. And that line of questioning sets up the really beautiful dialogue that happens in the rest of the chapter between Boaz and Ruth. Their interaction gives us a picture of grace and of blessing and of kindness, of mercy and of love. Listen to the picture from verse 11. Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then Ruth responds, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Ruth is essentially saying here, though I am on the lowest rung of the social ladder, you have comforted me and blessed me beyond words. This is the kind of language that when Ruth spoke in this thou-like way to Naomi in chapter one, it left Naomi speechless. Well, the same thing happens here between those paragraph breaks of uh, verse 13 and 14, there's a bit of a pregnant pause, so to speak, and Boaz says nothing in return. Well, the stage is set for verse 14. Some time had passed as Ruth went back into the field uh, to work and Boaz went about his business, and now it's mealtime. Cue up the dramatic music. Oh, you're getting worse and worse. <laughs> that felt dramatic though, so I'll stick with it, all right. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. This is the first date in the book of Ruth. A nice romantic meal of roasted grain with wine for dipping. Notice who is serving who at this meal. Notice who serves who. Here is Boaz, the wealthy landowner, the master, the lord of the estate, who is serving Ruth this meal. He is passing the food to her a Gentile foreign woman who's sitting at the same table as the wealthy host, and the host is the one doing the serving. Does that sound like anybody else in the Bible that you know of? That sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Here you go. Have some bread, dip it into the wine, have until you are plenty full. You know what I have in mind here? Carabas. Anybody been to Carabas? A few, all right. Carabas, uh, it's a decent restaurant. It's a little pricey, but here's the way to get out of Carabas uh, for a reasonable price, all right? Go there, order one entree, split it with your wife, and order water to drink. You can get out of there for under $20, all right? 
You can do that there because prior to your meal, they bring you a big loaf of bread and then they put this concoction. It's got oil and pepper and seasoning. I don't know what, what, what everything that's in it, but it's really good. It's really tasty. Well, they'll bring you as many loaves of bread as you want. Just keep loading up on bread. Eat as much bread as you want. Order one entree and get out of there for under $20. That's the idea that I get here at Boaz's table. Eat as much as you want. Have some roasted bread. Dip it in the wine. So Ruth eats as much as her stomach could hold, which probably would have been a lot, because remember, she's hungry. And there was still some left over. Verse 15, she rose from the meal to glean, and Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even from among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. In other words, here's what Boaz is doing. He's telling uh, his workers in the field, don't embarrass her. She doesn't know all of the rules of etiquette in our land. Don't embarrass her. In fact, do just the opposite. Be intentionally careless so that she goes home with plenty. Boaz was going to ensure that she wasn't going to go hungry and that she was going to be safe and protected. All right, verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. I know, I know, nobody's impressed because nobody has any clue what an ephah is. I didn't either, it's okay. So for clarity, one commentator said this, it's just so helpful. Uh, an ephah is about one-half to two-thirds of a bushel. <laughs> Crystal clear now, right? All right. One-half to two-thirds of a bushel is between 30 to 50 pounds. Now, a little perspective here. In this day, an average ration for a male worker was one to two pounds per day. She just walked away with 30 to 50 pounds. And we know that Ruth must have done CrossFit because the next verse says, verse 18, she took it up and she went into the city. This is like picture carrying one of those uh, huge bags of dog food from Costco that you struggle to maneuver from the shelf into your cart. You're like, man, I got to really get my legs into this and not, not strain my back. It's, she's got 30 to 50 pounds of barley that she's hauling on her back. She heads back. Now, her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. Can you picture what Naomi's face might have been like? She's been sitting there all day looking for Naomi to come back, probably hoping, man, I really hope she's been safe today. I hope she just makes it back safe, hoping maybe she could cobble together a little something that they could sit around a little fire maybe and, and roast and eat together, hoping for a little success in her work to eat welfare enterprise. And Naomi sees Ruth coming towards her, hauling 30 to 50 pounds of barley on her back. And our author adds in a little bit of additional humor. Ruth also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied from sitting and eating at Boaz's table. So not only does Ruth come back and throw down 30 to 50 pounds of grain, she also reaches into her back pocket and says, hey, here's some carabas that I had for lunch today. It's been a good day, Naomi. No doubt, Naomi, her response to this, she would have been happy. She would have been probably elated, thinking, man, what abundance, what riches. Do you remember the last time we saw Naomi? I know it was seven weeks ago. I barely remember uh, what I did yesterday, much less seven weeks ago. But the last time we saw Naomi in this story, she was describing her bitterness, how the Lord had afflicted her, telling her past acquaintances, don't call me by Naomi, call me Mara. Naomi has gone from bitterness to blessing. 
Which a little pause here. Could it be, brothers and sisters, that right in the middle of our most bitter experiences in life that God is plotting for our satisfaction? He's working behind the scenes to bring about blessings, even in the midst of what so often feels like just devastation and affliction. Could it be that in the depths of our sorrow, God is busy working for our good? Verse 19, Naomi asks, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Now here's the deal. As those reading this story this morning, we know that the best news is yet to come. 30 to 50 pounds of barley is great. It'll take care of them for a good long while, but there's more. There's a lot more coming. There's blessing coming that will go far beyond provision of several meals for the next several weeks. Keep in mind here, Ruth knows she was working in the fields of a man called Boaz, but Ruth has no clue who Boaz is or his significance to her in any way yet. Naomi still doesn't know that it was Boaz's field that Ruth was gleaning in. She's asking Ruth, whose field did you get all of this from? So the main pieces of information are yet to click into place. You think Naomi's happy now, but the author intentionally saves the name of the person in whose field that Ruth was working to the very end. As readers of the story, as we seek to enter into this unfolding drama and try to feel what they're, they're feeling, you can picture Naomi's face, right? As she waits to hear from Ruth on pins and needles, who's the man, whose field is this that you worked in? You think it's good because of all this food? Look at this, Ruth answered and said, the end of verse 19, the man's name, with whom I worked today is, cue the dramatic music, Boaz. Naomi's jaw drops. She picks her jaw up off the ground where it had dropped to, and she says to Ruth, verse 20, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. It's a couple of important words that Naomi drops in this response. The ESV translates it kindness. The Hebrew word there is hesed. It's a hard word to translate. It includes all of these ideas, grace, favor, Mercy, kindness, loving kindness, steadfast loving kindness. There's some debate here if you look at it. Who exactly is Naomi referring to? Is it Boaz who's showing her kindness, them kindness, or is it God? I personally think it's both. It's ultimately referring to God, but the means through which the kindness is coming to them is through Boaz. The other important word she drops is Redeemer. Said I'd reference this at the beginning. Uh, some translators use the word kinsman redeemer. A redeemer is a male who's part of the same clan who had legal ability to marry a woman in the case where a husband had died. This is the, again the law of leveret marriage. Through marrying the widow, the redeemer is able to purchase the deceased man's property and thus provide for the widowed woman. So Ruth begins to realize that this isn't just a kind man with no family ties. This is an honorable man with very close family relations to us. He's from the same clan as Elimelech. He is a redeemer. Verses 21 and following. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young women until they have finished all of my harvest and go out with his young women lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley harvest. All right, here's the deal. At the end of uh, chapter one, there were two major problems that Ruth and Naomi had that the book of Ruth needs to solve. Ruth and Naomi were in need of food. They needed to find a way to eat. Ruth and Naomi were in need of family. They needed to figure out a way, how are we gonna be protected and provided for? Food, check. 
barley and wheat harvest. They last a few months. We don't know how much she brought home each day, but we get the idea that she's not going to go hungry anytime soon. She was able to glean enough food for she and Naomi that would see them through the rest of the year. This is an amazing provision. But with all the action that we see in Ruth chapter 1 and Ruth chapter 2, chapter 2 kind of ends on a dud. Uncue the dramatic music. Last sentence of the chapter, and she lived with her mother-in-law. What? <laughs> this story can't end like that. I mean, there were sparks flying between Ruth and Boaz, weren't there? Interest was peaked. They had their first date. I mean, come on, Boaz. Ruth is in your field for two to three months. What are you waiting for? Make your move. State your intentions. Get down on your knee and ask this girl to marry you already. But at this stage of the story, there remains a problem. Food is provided, but Ruth and Naomi are still in need of family. Instead, Ruth, the widowed Moabitess, Verse 23 is still living with her mother-in-law. And that's where Ruth 2 leaves us. Now, thankfully, there are two chapters left to uh, resolve the remaining tension. I can't wait for us to get to those resolutions. Actually, I can kind of wait because chapter 3, I have no clue how I'm going to preach chapter 3. There's some complicated details that I'm a little scared of, but that's, that's for next time, all right? All right, we'll get to that next time. All right. What do we learn from all of this? What lessons do we see we receive from this 23-point sermon in Ruth 2? Well, we've seen certainly God's provision, God's sovereign provision, even in the midst of tragedy and need, and in seeing God's really marvelous providence, I hope you're helped to trust Him all the more in the midst of your own trials and your own suffering. But in addition to that, there are two places that I want us to focus together for application, okay? And I'm going to make application by asking two questions. The two questions are this. One, are we a merciful people? Are we merciful? Two, how do you respond when mercy and kindness is shown to you? Two questions. Do you give mercy? How do you receive mercy? Here's our first question. Are we Emmanuel members, merciful people? Are we especially merciful? to those who are different, those who don't fit in, those who are outsiders? Do we make visitors, especially those who don't look like us, don't dress like us, don't talk like us, don't fit in like us, do we make outsiders feel deeply welcomed? Do you invite visitors to sit beside you on Sundays? Ruth, remember, she's clearly an outsider in Israel. She was actually an outsider from a place, Moab, with a particularly disagreeable relationship with Israel. A little ancient Near Eastern history lesson here. Moab came into existence because Lot committed incest with two of his daughters. The firstborn of that first daughter, was named Moab and settled and formed the people of Moab. The descendants settled there. You can read about Moab and their relationship with Israel in Numbers 25, but there we learn that Moab was responsible for, do, uh, for its women seducing Israelite men into sexual immorality, and God responded by killing 24,000 Israelite men who fell into sexual immorality and began worshiping Baal through the influence of Moabite women. Moab, as you read through the Old Testament as well, they were particularly unkind to Israel in Israel's wilderness wanderings from Egypt into the Promised Land. They were a nation that often stood against Israel and treated them with great hostility. And here, Boaz is showing extravagant kindness, unexpected kindness to an enemy. So the question, are we merciful like that? Do we show mercy to those we might perceive as our enemies? Are we extravagant in our mercy? Who has been at your table this past year? Who have you served a meal to this past year? Is there anyone, anyone at all, who would be considered an outsider, a shocking one, an unlikely one to have received a meal at your home? 
I'll confess personally, brothers and sisters, there have been seasons where I could definitely say that's true of our family. We've had people living with us even who would be regarded as outsiders. And we've been burned a time or two and grown a bit gun shy. There are reasons, there always are, but at the end of the day, here's the reality for us. We, Emmanuel, we are an inner city church that many of us drive 15, 20, 30, maybe 40 minutes to attend. And being inner city provides us with opportunities to rub shoulders with many folks that we likely would not otherwise rub shoulders with. So the question, what are we doing to steward that reality? What are we doing? How are we stewarding that beautiful opportunity? More to the point of the text, I don't think Ruth would have been, would have posed a danger to Boaz, but his mercy towards her cost him something. His bottom line as he harvested his crop this year dropped. He lost some of his wealth, or at least potential for added wealth, by the mercy he showed to Ruth and Naomi. What about you? Is money something you're willing to lose in order to show kindness to others, or is your money yours and not for showing mercy to others? We don't know, but maybe Boaz wore knockoff sandals this year, postponed that chariot upgrade for a year in order to show this kind of mercy. My question is essentially this, brothers and sisters, are we a merciful people? Do we have compassion towards outsiders? Are we a friend to those who are in need? Are we willing to go without added blessings so that those with nothing might have something? Are we given to being merciful? Emmanuel, I am confident that we can grow and mature from where we are. Now, I give praise and thanks to God. I do believe He's made us a merciful people, and there is a lot to celebrate in terms of kindness these ways. I am also confident that we have not yet reached the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ as it relates to that kind of lavish, extravagant giving of mercy. There's room for us to grow. Second question, I got to start wrapping up. How do you receive mercy? Not just how do you give mercy, but how do you receive mercy? If it's hard for us to give it, I think it's also quite hard for us to receive mercy, like real, undeserved mercy. Our pride blocks us from receiving mercy humbly, especially as Americans. We generally believe that we get what we deserve. If we have a job, we have food, we have provision, it's because we've earned it. But we carry that over into spiritual things, and we often believe that we get from the Lord what we've earned and worked for and deserve. But here's the precious truth and reality. If we got what we deserved, really deserved, then you know what we would get? Eternal separation from God, condemnation, judgment, and hell for all of eternity. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not even one. All have turned away from God. We've gone our own way. The only way to God is through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the way to come to Him is only by His grace, trusting, clinging to His mercy alone. The only way to have a right relationship with God is receive grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. So the question, how do you, how do you really do living your life in such a way that it's clear that your whole life, everything about you is mercy, grace, undeserved forgiveness, unmerited favor, pardoned, received by believing, not as a result of your works, but wholly and completely by grace alone, through faith alone. Do you have a relationship with God that is built on you trusting Christ alone and receiving His mercy? Did you notice the effect that this mercy had on Naomi? It moved her from seeing her situation as afflicted by the Lord to moving her to see herself as blessed by the Lord. Her heart began to soften towards God, and she cried out, the Lord bless him. God has not stopped showing kindness to the living or the dead. This is a far cry from call me Mara, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Instead of seeing God's afflictions, she begins to see God's provision towards her. 
And when a needy person receives lavish mercy, it really does often have that effect on them. It's the Lord's kindness, I would argue, that leads Naomi to this repentance. We see her repentance in a changed heart attitude towards God. God has not stopped showing kindness to the living or the dead. God is still God. He's mindful of us. He's caring for us. And his provision for us is good. It's those kinds of heart attitudes that lead to change behavior. Troubled over behaviors in your life that are sinful? How's your heart towards the Lord? Whenever you're grumbling and complaining, sins have a way of clinging a lot closer. You can justify those sins because you're grumbling at the Lord. When your heart is grateful, obedience follows. So Naomi tells Ruth, stay in the fields of Boaz. Don't go into another field. Ruth and Naomi both teach us a great lesson about how to receive mercy. And the lesson is this. When mercy is shown to us, we ought to respond with genuine, heartfelt thankfulness, gratitude, and worship. Ruth recognizes that she was an unworthy recipient of Boaz's mercy. What does she do when she receives mercy from Boaz? She worships. She falls to the ground. She bows down and she worships. Naomi says, God has not stopped showing kindness to the living or the dead. Do you see yourself before God that way? Unworthy, undeserving, bankrupt in and of yourself, destitute, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, nothing in yourself making you, wor you worthy. Can the eyes of your heart see God's kindness, see his mercy, see his grace, see his steadfastness and his provision for you? And are you responding and seeing that with heartfelt worship, wholehearted devotion, to the Lord. There's a connection between these two applications, and I'm done. You have trouble giving mercy if you never come to recognize how much mercy has been given to you. When you know that you've received mercy from God, it frees you up to be merciful like God is merciful. Emmanuel, may we ever increasingly be a people marked by mercy. May we grow to be a better reflection of who God is so full of mercy towards sinners that his people respond by bowing low and shouting out loud, God is good. God is steadfast. God is merciful. God is gracious. God abounds in steadfast loving kindness. God has not forgotten me. God will never forsake me. God is powerful over everything. Our God is great and greatly to be praised. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a great God. You're sovereign over everything. Pray that we would worship you. Just with all of our heart, we would worship you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Make us a merciful people as you are merciful. In Jesus' name, amen.